to make your way to your seats, let me just say what a beautiful fall day it is, nice and crisp. Leaves are turning color. Great to see those red and oranges and yellows and just a, a joyous time of celebrating the fall season. So really great to see you here today. Uh, let me first of all mention I am not the pastor. Uh, pastor Demi is on vacation, a well-deserved vacation with his family, and they'll be back in the middle of this week. But I did want to say that uh, we need to pray for him and also uh, others, and we'll do that here uh, shortly. But let me also mention that our lead music guy, who's normally up here playing the gu guitar, Edwan, is on a trip also down to Florida to meet with mother-in-law. And so he passed the torch to Dan. So uh, Dan and Aaron are going to be uh, assisting us in worship here this morning. Uh, so let me just mention that uh, we do have a guest preacher, if you will. I hate that term. It sounds rather formal, but... Eric Abbey will be up here shortly, and I'll introduce you uh, more about him in a, in a few minutes. But uh, we're going to also have communion today, so let me encourage you to pick up one of the communion cups if you haven't already done so, and we'll move into that later on after the sermon. A uh, couple of announcements. We do have a care team meeting at 12 o'clock sharp right after worship is over down in the fellowship hall. We also will be having a fall workday next Saturday. The window of opportunity to use your gifts is between 9 and 12 in the morning. However, there will be a continental breakfast uh, at 8.30, and so feel free to come at that time and enjoy some fellowship before we uh, do some heavy lifting outside and inside. And I'll be putting out a newsletter article that defines some of the things that we'll be doing. Let me also mention we're not that far away. Uh, November 5th is when we're going to have a Good Works Day, and there's an insert about that, and also a sign-up um, in the back of the sanctuary uh, where if you want to participate in helping as a volunteer, do good works at selected places, uh, just put your name on the clipboard. Uh, you do not need to be gifted in any particular way, just be willing to help out, and the opportunities will be made more clear as we get closer and closer to that day. So again, uh, great to see all of you this morning. Great to see Dan and Aaron here at the, at the microphones, and uh, let me just say, let's worship the Lord with all of our heart and soul, and let the uh, songs that you sing be literally praises to a high and holy God. Amen. All right, why don't we stand, and um, we'll start with the call to worship today. For while we were still weak, at the right time, God, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his great love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's sing together this morning. Praises to our amazing, loving God. Oh, come, oh, you unfaithful, come, weak and unstable, come, no, you are not alone. Oh, come, barren and radiant. 
being the God who you are, the God that comes down, who reaches the least of us, which is all of us, Lord. For while we were still ungodly, you died for us. We pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would teach us. You are our good and our best. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. At this time, we'll dismiss the children to Children's Church, and you'll miss it.
Well, again, it's great to see all of you here on this beautiful fall morning. Uh, one of the portions of our worship experience that I so much appreciate, especially the way Pastor Demi does it, is uh, the morning prayer. Uh, it's always one of those prayers that is all-encompassing and covers a broad spectrum. <clears throat> I'm not going to try and duplicate his style, but I will start out, though, obviously praising a high and holy God, and I think that is an appropriate way to begin any time of prayer. So join me together, our hearts together, as we approach the throne of grace. O oh Lord, you are truly high, you are truly holy, you are immortal, you are invisible, you are omniscient, you are transcendent. Lord, the adjectives go on and on. Lord, you are the creator of all things. And we are humbled when we approach the throne and just lay our prayer requests on your altar. And so we know right now, Lord, that, you, that Christ sits at the right hand of God and interceding on our behalf. And Lord, we even know that you know our thoughts, you know our prayers even before we utter them. And what a great sense of comfort that gives to us. You are interceding on our behalf. Lord, you are the epitome of sacrificial love, and we will acknowledge that reality when we share together in the ordinance of communion. But Lord, we are coming before you with some specific prayer requests. We pray right now for Dwight Merrill as he copes with the progressive Parkinson's and how yesterday he was moved from Wentworth Douglas to a rehab center in Hampton. And Lord, uh, as we get more details, we'll share that with the family. Uh, but right now, Lord, we ask for your divine intervention in his life, that you'll give him a sense of peace and give Karen a sense of peace and purpose as she has to make some tough decisions. And Lord, many of us in this room have been faced with tough decisions, but we have one great God who intercede. And so we ask you to do that now in Dwight's life. Lord, we also remember Red Crossman today, and I want to especially remember his wife Marge, who today is visiting with Red in a special way, and so, Lord, we want to remember Red and his ministry, his, his passion, his desire to share his faith wherever he went, and so we ask for strength for Marge as she copes living alone without Red, and Lord, we want to lift up to you our worship leader, Edwin Batista, as he transitions back from a lengthy trip to Florida. And so, Lord, uh, put your hand on on him as he travels and allow him the freedom to come back without hindrance. And so, Lord, we look forward to that. Pray also for our pastors on vacation. Lord, uh, it's sometimes tough for pastors to vacate the pulpit. They are so committed to preaching the word of God that they fail to take care of their own physical health, and so, Lord, we pray that this will be a time of refreshment, rejuvenation, and so, Lord, a special prayer for them. We pray a special prayer for also for all the people that are, in the sense of the word, homeless because of the hurricane that came through the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico and Florida and other states down south, and so, Lord, we know there are many people that can't even get back to their homes still, and when they do, they'll find little that is left. So, Lord, there's a 
a lot of people dealing with anxiety right now, and people dealing with a sense of loss, perhaps even a sense of purpose. And so, Lord, intercede for those believers that have been displaced by the ravages of, of the hurricane. <clears throat> Lord, we acknowledge the reality that there are tensions in the world as we look at the morning news about threats of nuclear missiles, threats of nuclear retaliation, threats that have been equated by the president as something to do with Armageddon. I don't have no idea if he understands what he's saying when he does that, but certainly, Lord, we want to ask your uh, interference with uh, the minds and thoughts of those that are in leadership positions around the world, that there will not be a... An excessive desire to demonstrate power, but will have an excessive passion for peace. And so, Lord, we pray for that in each and every situation. And, Lord, closer to home, <clears throat> we are on the verge of having elections in various areas of the country. And some of those elections have citizens' appeals and warrant amendments and documentation that is potentially um, divisive, and so, Lord, I pray for unity as the political world tries to wrestle with candidates and with issues, and Lord, it may seem a little strange for us to be praying for politicians today, but Lord, I do pray that, you, that for those that espouse you as their personal Lord and Savior, that that attitude will be reflective in how they preach and how they uh, talk about their issues from the platform. But Lord, from this platform, we're soon going to hear from Eric Abbey, and I pray for his ministry. And and so, Lord, uh, just let's have a great time at the foot of Christ, listening to the Word of God espoused and also sharing in communion that is to follow. So, Lord, uh, just thank you for interceding at the right hand of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask Eric to make his way to the platform, but as he do does, I'm putting my glasses on so I can actually read a little bit about him, but Eric is uh, on the staff at a place called NETS, and for those that don't know it, uh, we support NETS financially with a monthly stipend, and you can read about that on the back slat wall, but NETS stands for New England Training and Sending. Okay. And uh, he is actually what's called a shepherding mentor and also is an elder at Christ Memorial Church in Williston, Vermont. And he's on the staff as an associate pastor for counseling. And so with that brief introduction, uh, Eric, feel free to come up here and share what God has put on your heart. And thank you for making the journey this morning all the way from Vermont. Or did you sneak in here last night? No, we drove in last night. All right. Well, welcome to the platform. Okay. Thank you very much, Jay. Well, it's great to be here with you. Uh, it's fun to be back in the New Hampshire area. You know, I used to work for Campus Crusade for Christ, which, in fact, I uh, worked for them for several years and got my initial ministry experience through Crew, and uh, I served for several years at the University of New Hampshire. So I lived in Lee and, and loved this area. In fact, I met my wife. Uh, while we were working at the University of New Hampshire. She's a North Carolina girl, but she came up here to do ministry in New England, and we met. 
And uh, subsequent to that, I got my seminary education and moved to Vermont, where, as Jay said, I'm now on the pastoral staff at Christ Memorial and, and with Net. So it's fun to be back in New Hampshire, and I'm grateful that you have had me this morning. Um, we've, we've heard a lot about you, and we've been praying for you. Uh, I was a part of the, the, the group that trained and, and mentored Ademi and Caitlin as they came through our program, and so I've known about Seacoast Community Church, but it's different to actually be among you and to be with you this morning, so I'm really grateful to be here. Well, if you will, join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll turn to the scriptures. Father, thank you for this opportunity to open up your word this morning, and we indeed ask that you would speak to us. I ask that you'd be with my friends here, that they would have hearts to listen and respond to your word, and I pray that you'd give me grace to preach clearly and to preach faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I'm wondering this morning if you know what a pariah is. Have you heard of the phrase social pariah? What's being said when someone's called a pariah? Well, a pariah is, a, is an outsider, an outcast, someone who's despised, someone who's looked down on. A social pariah is an outcast who's avoided, someone who's shunned or ostracized, isolated from other people. And the word pariah derives from Hindu Indian society and was used to refer to the lowest people group within the Indian caste system. Maybe you've heard of, of these people as referred to as untouchables. Uh, the common word today is, is Dalits. So a pariah is a social outcast, someone who's been designated as low in society. They've been disregarded and, and spurned because of some detested characteristic or belief or status. And you can probably think of ways that our society has traditionally labeled various people as pariahs. And, and some of these still exist today. I'm sure you can think of it, at least one example of a modern-day social outcast. And some people experience social banishment because they fall in hard times. The disenfranchised can be viewed as outcasts. So, so we know about outsiders. In the first century Jewish culture, there were, there were plenty of social outsiders. Can, can you think of some pariahs that appear on the pages of the Bible? We'll see reference to several in the Gospel of Luke this morning. In fact, outcasts are central to Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke. Why is that? What role do they play? I wonder if you've ever felt like a social pariah. Do you view yourself maybe as, a, as an outcast? Maybe yes, maybe no, maybe a little bit or at certain times. Well, either way... How should you relate to Jesus when you feel that way? What's your response to Jesus' life and ministry? What does it look like to follow him? Well, these questions, I think, will be answered as we look at the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. So turn with me to Luke chapter 4, and I'll begin by reading verses 14 through 22. They'll also be on the screen, but I'm going to be having us look at several passages throughout the Gospel of Luke. So if you can have a Bible in your hand, I think it'll, it'll prove to be helpful. But I'm going to start by reading Luke 4, verses 14 through 22. Follow along with me. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. 
He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? So this passage, starting in chapter 4, verse 14, is central to the book of Luke and to the book of Acts. You do know that Luke wrote both, don't you? He wrote the gospel, an orderly account of what Jesus accomplished, and he wrote the book of Acts, the account of how the ascended and reigning Lord Jesus Christ began to build his church. And this passage in Luke 4 is central to both. It's central to Luke's purposes. In chapters 1 through 3, in the first half of chapter 4, Luke introduces Jesus. Everything leading up to 4.14 is preparatory. The people and circumstances of Jesus' birth are explained. John the Baptist arrives to prepare the way. Mary and Zechariah and Simeon celebrate the newborn Savior. And then Jesus is established as the holy, obedient Son. The Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove at his baptism, and then the Spirit leads him into the wilderness and empowers him to resist the devil. And then starting in 4.14, Luke presents Jesus as the Savior for outcasts. We begin to see his ministry to outsiders. Verses 14 and 15 are preliminary. Jesus returns from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, and in Galilee his reputation grows. He becomes known as a teacher, much esteemed by all those who hear him. So it's Jesus' custom to teach in the Jewish synagogues, and this is exactly what he does, beginning in verse 16. Jesus enters the synagogue in his hometown, Nazareth, and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. He stands up, he unrolls the scroll to what we know of as Isaiah 61, and he reads. So I thought we'd read it together in Isaiah. So if you have your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus unrolled the scroll and went right to this passage, and he read Isaiah, what we know of as Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Look at them in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is where Jesus stops reading, if you're following along with me. He rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant. And what doesn't he read? Do you see it in the passage? He, he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he stops. And he doesn't say, and the day of vengeance of our God. That first comma in Isaiah 61-2 has lasted almost 2,000 years. The year of the Lord's favor is a prophetic word from Isaiah that points forward to the messianic day of salvation. This prophecy in Isaiah 61 is anticipating a time when the Messiah will come and will bring with him God's favor. In him, God will bring a happy time of restoration and freedom. And so Jesus reads these words in the synagogue back in Luke 4. He sits down, and then Luke says in verse 21 that the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
That's a dramatic moment of attention being focused on Jesus. What will he say? What, what will his teaching be? And then you see it in verse 21. Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus, in that Jewish synagogue in Nazareth, declares himself to be the Messiah that's fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus has come heralding and accomplishing salvation for God's people. And Luke presents this synagogue moment as programmatic, as central to the whole gospel, and as central to the book of Acts as well. So everything he writes supports or flows from this event in Nazareth. So note a couple things with me. One, Jesus fulfills Isaiah 61 because the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. You see that in the verses immediately preceding this story. For example, chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness temptation. And then in verse 14 that we just read, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. And second, Jesus was anointed as Messiah. You know that the word Messiah means anointed one, don't you? So Messiah from the Old Testament Hebrew and Christ from the New Testament Greek both mean anointed one. And so Jesus is anointed by the Spirit as the Messiah. And that's what happened in Luke 3.22. If you glance back at Luke 3.22, I'll read 21 and 22. Luke writes, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So Jesus had the Spirit of God descend upon him, and he was anointed for ministry just as Isaiah prophesied. That's what I want you to see. He's the one to come and declare salvation to God's people and to fulfill it on their behalf. Well, what does this ministry look like? What are the marks of this salvation? The proclamation of the gospel. Good news announced to the poor and liberty and restoration and recovery, all the wonderful things that accompany the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus has come to proclaim that year, that season of grace. Or as he'll say in verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That's why he was sent. That's why he came. He was announcing and bringing near God's kingdom, God's saving kindness and all the blessings that attend it. So when Jesus performs healings or casts out demons or restores sight to the blind or cleanses lepers or resurrects the dead, he's performing miracles that attest to God's kingdom. All those wonders say, the kingdom is here. Those wonders announce that salvation has come, that salvation is here. And thus they point to a need that's not primarily physical or political or cultural. God's kingdom and God's favor don't concern the eyes of the body or systemic worldly oppression or financial poverty. Instead, God has sent his son to deliver us from sin. Jesus came to address the heart of our problems. He came to heal our souls and restore the breach that exists between us and the God who created us. So he's come to proclaim good news to the spiritually impoverished, to the morally bankrupt, to those who are poor in spirit. He's come to proclaim liberty to those who are captive to the law of sin, to those who are oppressed and enslaved by their own iniquities, those who are in bondage to the flesh, 
He's come to proclaim recovery of sight to the spiritually blind, to open the eyes of hearts blinded by sin, to enlighten those who are in darkness. This is what Jesus was anointed and set apart to do. Now, how do we know this? How can I say those things with such confidence? You probably want to see some evidence, don't you? Show your work, Pastor Eric, especially if you're going to waltz in here from out of town and expect us to trust you. Well, this is what the Gospel of Luke is all about. The Bible's real concern is your sin, and so is Luke's concern. Jesus came to save sinners from their sin, and all his miracles and wonders point to that. For example, in Luke chapter 5, and if you want to just skim with me through the Gospel of Luke, go for it. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus heals a paralytic, a lame outcast. But before healing the man, Jesus declares to him, your sins are forgiven you. And when the scribes and Pharisees question him, he says, well, which, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? And then he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the man, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And Jesus heals the man. He rises and he picks up his bed. And the healing was a visible and incontrovertible demonstration that Jesus had the power to forgive sins. That's what that healing is all about. And then the Pharisees make a big fuss over the feast that Jesus enjoys with Levi the tax collector, the very next passage in Luke 5. He was a social pariah in his day, a Jewish tax collector. They were despised by the Jews. And in verse 30, the Pharisees grumble at Jesus' disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Do you see that? And how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Well, what kind of sickness, Jesus? I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Of course, See, Jesus makes it a matter of moral righteousness or unrighteousness. It's about sin and repentance, isn't it? Healing, calling tax collectors to follow him, it's all about saving sinners. Or how about the woman that comes to Jesus in Luke chapter 7? That story starts in verse 36. Jesus is invited to eat with a Pharisee named Simon, and as they're reclining at the table, this woman comes in and interrupts the meal. And the text says she's a woman of the city. Verse 37, a sinner, an outcast. So Simon the Pharisee grumbles. In verse 39, he says to himself, if this man, speaking of Jesus, were a prophet, he would have known who and of what sort of woman this is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus knows Simon's thoughts. You've got to be careful when you're around Jesus. So Jesus answers him with a parable about forgiveness. And he ends by saying in verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. They're forgiven. In fact, he turns to the woman right in the middle of the supper and says to her, your sins are forgiven. And then in verse 49, those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And now listen to verse 50. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Do you see that? Your faith has saved you. That same phrase appears in Luke chapter 17, verse 19. Jesus cleanses ten lepers, ten additional outcasts in Luke 17, but only one returns to thank him. And when he does, 
Jesus says to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. Except for if you look at your translation, it says your faith has made you well or your faith has healed you. But it's the exact same phrase we read in chapter 7, verse 50. Your faith has saved you. So the cleansing of the leper is designed to point to the heart cleansing, the the heart making clean that sinners need before a holy God. And you can see the same thing in chapter 18 and verse 42, when Jesus restores sight to the blind beggar, another outcast. Jesus tells him, recover your sight, your faith has saved you. But whatever translation you have, it says, your faith has made you well or your faith has healed you. But it's the exact same, the identical phrase, your faith has saved you. So the recovery of sight is a picture of this man's blind heart receiving the ability to see. It's an illustration that his sin-darkened soul was given light. That's what it's meant to explain and illustrate. And finally, consider what Jesus says about his own mission in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. In chapter 19, Jesus visits the outcast Zacchaeus. You know him as the, the wee little man. And when Jesus visits Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus repents And he believes the gospel. And Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house. And how does Jesus ground his statement of salvation? Well, he states his his mission. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. There it is. Jesus is concerned foremost about the need that sinners have for salvation. We need to be rescued from captivity to our sins. That's what we need. We must have our eyes open so that we no longer walk in darkness. We must admit our spiritual bankruptcy before the God of all heaven. This is why Jesus in in Luke 9.51 set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He was destined to endure the cross and to lay down his life for sinners like you and me. The whole gospel of Luke leads to Jerusalem, which is the place of the cross. And at the cross, Jesus became a sin offering. He atoned for sin by absorbing God's wrath, by taking God's punishment upon himself, and by suffering death. He was made sin. He stood in the place of guilty sinners. He died that sinners might be set free from their sins, that they might be, that they might be forgiven, that they might be saved. The cross is all the evidence you need. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to proclaim liberty to sinners. He came to heal sinners. He came to cleanse sinners. He came to give them sight and forgiveness and freedom. That's what he came to do. So Jesus rolls up the scroll back in Luke chapter 4, hands it to the attendant, and he sits down. And he says to the Jewish synagogue today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And everyone marvels at his gracious words. And they say, is this not Joseph's son? The Jews are impressed with the way Jesus speaks, aren't they? He showed amazing understanding, Jesus did. His words possessed authority. Not bad for the old carpenter's son, huh? The Nazareth synagogue crowd hears Jesus speak impressive words, but their hearts are far from him. Their response is only a local blue-collar commendation. Joseph's son might actually make it as a rabbi. But it's not a faithful response. The crowd isn't receiving what Jesus is saying. They actually disregard Jesus' words with polite gossip. And they expose their unbelief. Now how do we know this? 
How do we know the crowd's heart? Well, because of what's said and done in the rest of our passage. So let's read verses 23 and 30 together, 23 through 30, Luke chapter 4. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Wow, that's quite a story, isn't it? We know that the Jewish synagogue crowd was filled with unbelief because of Jesus' teaching. He immediately exposes their thinking in his teaching. He knows that they're about to demand miracles. They're going to say, do in Nazareth what you did over in Capernaum. So the report of verse 14 has reached their ears, and they want to see Jesus perform signs and wonders. They're not responding in faith to Jesus' presentation of himself. They don't see that a day of salvation is dawning. They don't accept Jesus as the anointed Messiah. They just see Joseph's son. And it'd be cool if the hometown boy could do some wonders. Well, Jesus isn't interested here in putting on a show. Instead, he confronts their unbelief. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And the crowd is reacting to Jesus the same way their, their Jewish ancestors did, the same way their fathers did. Unbelieving Israel of old killed the prophets, and now this synagogue is acting no different. It's acting the exact same way. And that's why Jesus speaks of both Elijah and Elisha. He shows that Jewish rejection is the Old Testament pattern. Israel has always rejected the prophets. His first example is Elijah from 1 Kings 17. You don't need to turn there. God brings a time of severe drought upon Israel, and there's famine. And God sends the prophet Elijah, not to people in Israel, but to Sidon, a Gentile land. And Elijah goes to a widow in the town of Zarephath. And there he and the widow and her son are preserved miraculously during the famine. And the key reason that Jesus references this story is to show that God sent the prophet Elijah away from Israel and to a Gentile woman in a foreign land. And then in verse 27, Jesus mentions Elisha from an event in 2 Kings 5. Naaman is a Syrian. He too is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And he solicits the king of Israel to help him with his leprosy, his uncleanness, and when the prophet Elisha hears about it, he meets with Naaman, and Naaman is cleansed. He's fully healed. He washes seven times in the Jordan River, and he's, he's completely restored. And Jesus points out here in our passage that despite the many lepers in Israel at the time of Naaman, Elisha cleanses only a Gentile. God takes notice of Naaman, not of any of the Jews. 
So in this way, Jesus confronts the unbelief and denial of the Jewish synagogue crowd in Nazareth. He exposes their unwillingness to accept him. And he teaches that they stand in a long line of Jewish rejection. And they react accordingly. In, in keeping with their, their unbelief. They get mad. Very mad. They drive Jesus to the end of a cliff and they're ready to kill him. But Jesus somehow passes through their midst and slips away and, and moves on to the next town. His time has not yet come. So Jesus has come to Nazareth and, and he's presented himself in his hometown. He's the Messiah come to preach the gospel to the poor, the one who fulfills the Isaiah 61 prophecy. And he's coming to bring the year of the Lord's favor. He's the, the savior for outcasts. He's presenting himself that way. And the religious Jews reject him. And as I said earlier, this is paradigmatic for the rest of Luke and Acts. Luke has presented this ministry event first so that you'll see it is programmatic. Luke 4, 16 through 30, is, it's meant to be like a pair of glasses. And Luke wants you to put them on and to view the rest of his gospel and the rest of the book of Acts through those lenses. For example, look at how uh, Jesus answers John the Baptist in Luke 7. This would be worth turning to. Look at Luke 7. John the Baptist is in prison. He's being persecuted. He will lose his head. And he's questioning Jesus in this moment, and he sends two disciples to ask Jesus in verse 19, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And how does Jesus respond to the, the persecuted and, and wavering prophet? Do you see how he responds? He answers in verse 22. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Here it is. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Does that sound familiar? It should. Jesus says, you can know that I'm the one because I'm doing Isaiah 61 stuff. That's how you can know. I'm doing Luke 4 kinds of things all over the place. I'm doing the very things that I said I would back in Nazareth. Do you see that? Also, look at the parable in chapter 14. Very interesting parable in Luke chapter 14. Jesus is eating at a wedding feast, so he teaches by telling a parable about a banquet. He tells a parable about a, a feast. And he says in verse 12, look at Luke 14, 12. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So who does Jesus say should be invited to this banquet? The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. It's, it's the outcasts, isn't it? That's exactly who it is. And then when a guest at the banquet mentions the kingdom of God, Jesus gives more detail. He, he expands the parable to give kingdom illustration. So skip down to verse 16, and I want to read 16 through 24. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out to see it. Please have me excused. 
And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. Jesus is here showing that the kingdom of God will be given to outcasts. God's invitation will go to outsiders. Again, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And to those who are in the highways and the hedges. Maybe think Gentiles. The kingdom won't be received by the nation of Israel. God sent his servant, Jesus, to the Jews, but they were offended by him. They made excuses because of their worldly unbelief, and they rejected him. So God goes to the Gentiles, and there are no greater outcasts than Gentiles. They were despised dogs, Gentile sinners in the eyes of the Jews. But Jesus came, remember, not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. So gospel proclamation goes to outcasts, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. It goes to Gentiles. And that's why Jesus performs all the miracles that are described throughout the Gospel of Luke. He cleanses lepers, he heals the lame, he raises the dead, he delivers those who are demon-possessed, he gives sight to the blind, all to demonstrate his willingness and ability to redeem lost outcasts from their sins. And that's why Luke writes about the salvation of Zacchaeus, the despised tax collector. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, those who are willing to identify as outcasts. Luke also shows how the gospel of the kingdom goes to outcasts by writing about the thief on the cross. You know about the thief on the cross. You can read about him in chapter 23. He's a despised criminal, and yet he's welcomed by Jesus into his kingdom. Jesus sees his faith and says, today you will be with me in paradise. And so the thief, certainly an outcast, is accepted on account of his simple faith, a faith, that exp- a faith that expresses his desperate need for a Savior. Luke gives us a picture of this saving faith in chapter 18 with a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Are you familiar with that one? The Pharisee prays proudly at the temples, a man who perceives himself to be righteous. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He declares that he's not an outcast, doesn't he? And he thanks God for it. But he's establishing his own prideful righteousness, and he is not justified. But the tax collector, he prays humbly at the temple. He beats his breast, and he he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knows his need for a Savior, and he calls out for mercy. And he, the outcast, is the man who goes to his home justified. The outcast is declared righteous on account of his faith. And Israel, typified by this Pharisee, doesn't believe and accept their Messiah. They reject Jesus in unbelief. Remember, their rejection in Luke 4 is paradigmatic. The scribes and the Pharisees question Jesus at every turn. Jesus pronounces woes against them, against the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, and so hostility mounts 
And ultimately they seek to put Jesus to death. This time not by throwing him over a cliff, but by nailing him to a cross. And you might remember the scene. Pontius Pilate declares Jesus to be innocent. He says, I have found no fault in him. But the Jews cry out, the Jewish crowds cry out, away with this man, crucify, crucify him. Luke even emphasizes in chapter 23, verse 23, that they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that Jesus ought to be crucified. So in the whole of Luke, Jesus is rejected by religious Jews. And this leads ultimately to his death on the cross. But you know, don't you? You know that the crucifixion was God's design. Yes, Israel's religious leaders delivered Jesus over to be killed, and and they're responsible for all the evil that they committed. But God purposed for Jesus to atone for sin in his crucifixion. In Acts chapter 2, Luke writes about Peter's sermon, and Peter preaches that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In chapter 4, the believers praying say that God will do whatever uh, his hand and plan has predestined to take place in the death of Jesus Christ. So do you see it? God planned for Jesus to be delivered over. He predestined that Jesus would be crucified. Why? so that he could make atonement for sins, so that he would stand as your substitute, brother and sister. You see, when Jesus hung on the cross, he bore all the sins of those who would trust in him. That means that if you're in Christ this morning, if you've been united to Jesus by faith, then his sacrifice is for you, which is what we'll celebrate at the Lord's table in just a couple minutes. His sacrifice is for you. He took your punishment. He experienced your judgment. Your sin was imputed to him, and he died in your place. Which means he took your spiritual poverty, your sin debt. He was held captive and oppressed by your iniquities. He was punished, and he was judged for your sins. It means that that Jesus became poor and crippled and blind and lame because of your, your sin, dear Christian. He was the one that became that way. He was blinded by the darkness of your transgressions. And then God the Father poured out his wrath on him and punished him for your sins. Jesus was crushed for you. He was put to grief for you. Why? So that you could be healed of all your guilt. So that you could be set free, set at liberty. So that you could be raised from the dead. This is the good news of the gospel that has been proclaimed to poor souls for centuries. This is the good news of the gospel that's proclaimed to you as a sinful outcast. So hallelujah for the forgiveness that's offered through faith in Jesus Christ. He loves to deliver his people from their sins, doesn't he? So church, this is what Christ did when he died on the cross. And three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that both sin and death had been conquered. And then he ascended into heaven and was crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And from that, that throne of cosmic authority, Jesus has been building his church through the proclamation of his apostles, the proclamation of this very gospel on the lips of the apostles. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. Jesus proclaims good news to the poor and liberty to captives through the preaching of his apostles and his people. That's why Peter preached repentance and faith in Christ in Acts 2 to those in Jerusalem. That's why the scattered and persecuted Christians in Acts 8 
preach the word in Judea and Samaria. That's why Peter and Paul preached Christ to Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. They were applying and accomplishing the ministry of Jesus Christ by His Spirit to the ends of the earth. And it continues to this day. Jesus is yet building His church, and He has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Today is still the day of salvation. So I just want to stop and say that if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm inviting you to come to Him. I'm inviting you to come to Him. I don't know all of you. I imagine in a group this size, there are some who have never believed in Jesus Christ. So if you've never turned to Him before by faith, please listen. Listen carefully. You are an outcast who needs a Savior. You are. You may not be a social pariah, but you are a spiritual pariah. You've sinned against God and your relationship with Him is severed. It's broken. So you're an outsider. You're disenfranchised. You're poor in spirit. And if you're honest, you can relate to feeling like an outsider or feeling like an outcast, one who's estranged from God, one who's morally blind. It's, it's like you have no compass. And I can relate. It wasn't terribly long ago that I felt the same way. And when I was honest about my sin, I felt crippled. I felt guilty. I just felt lost. And if you're lost, the problem is the sinful condition of your heart. That was my problem. And I'm sure that it's your problem. The Bible makes it clear. Sin is the problem that each of us faces apart from faith in Christ. So, dear friend, if you're outside of Christ, you're, you're an outcast. You're a lost sinner. Your soul is in poverty. You're walking in darkness. You're a slave held captive to your sin. You're poor, crippled, blind, lame because of your sin. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Listen to the good news this morning. Jesus Christ came for those who are sick. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He came to seek and to save the lost. And all you have to do is come to Him by faith and put your trust in Him. Turn away from your sin, confess it before God, and turn to Jesus through faith and repentance. He'll accept you. He will receive you. He'll welcome you into His kingdom. And He'll heal you. He'll set you free. He'll cleanse you and He'll declare you righteous. That's what He does. He promises to save all those who come to Him through faith alone. It's still the year of God's favor. It's still the day of salvation. So I'm asking this morning, will you come to Him? Will you just humble yourself before Him and admit your desperate need for a Savior? And He'll save you. He really will. He loves to save outcasts. And for my brothers and sisters here at Seacoast Community Church, I just want to say this. Praise God that He has set you free. Praise God that He's forgiven you. You heard good news proclaimed. You heard the gospel. And by God's grace, you believed. And as a result, sin no longer has dominion over you, does it? You have been set at liberty. And now it's your task as a church to proclaim that gospel to outsiders. Your witnesses. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all nations. So one, 
Be optimistic. You have everything you need. You've been fully equipped by the Lord Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father and is building His church. He's sent you His Spirit. He's made a promise to you that He will build His church. And you know the Gospel. You have the Gospel. You have the Word of God. Now now preach and proclaim that Word to all who will listen. And the Kingdom of God is growing. It's like a grain of mustard seed, Jesus says in the book of Luke. It grows and it becomes a tree such that the birds of the air are able to rest in its branches. So I'm saying be optimistic. God is rescuing lost sinners and you get to participate in that. If you preach the gospel faithfully as a church, you will get to rejoice as others come to Christ. And there is great joy in heaven over a sinner that repents. And you can, you can get a little taste of that joy as well as you proclaim the gospel and see sinners come to faith. That's the marvelous work that we get to do as a church. And the book of Acts demonstrates the success of God's word as it's preached and proclaimed. All the more reason to be optimistic. Don't rely, Seacoast, on anything other than the simple proclamation of the gospel. No tricks. There's no fancy footwork to build Christ's kingdom. Just Jesus-centered preaching. Plain proclamation of the gospel. Proclaiming good news to the poor. Liberty to the captives. Proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. So be optimistic. And secondly, be sober. The book of Acts also shows us that there's ongoing rejection. There's resistance to the gospel. We saw it in Luke 4. You can see it throughout the book of Acts. Persecution always accompanies gospel faithfulness, doesn't it? There was persecution in the book of Acts. There's persecution in New England today. America might not be as bad as first century Rome was, but we're working on it, and things are becoming more difficult. If Jesus was rejected and he was crucified, then we can expect to suffer. And when Jesus calls you to follow him, Seacoast community, he calls you to deny yourself and to take up your cross. In fact, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And so you're called to lay down your lives for the sake of God's kingdom, to lay down your lives for the gospel. Which, if we have our minds right, is a privilege. Jesus preaches in Luke, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you. Do you hear that? Blessed are you when that happens. When they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Can you relate to any of that living in New England? being excluded, being reviled, being spurned. Jesus says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. So anyone who's resisting you is just following in line with unbelieving Israel of old. And remember that the one who hears you hears Christ. That's helpful. If anyone responds, it's because of a divine work of grace in their lives, not because of your great work. And the one who rejects you 
rejects Christ. That helps you not take it personally, doesn't it? They're rejecting Jesus. They're not primarily rejecting you. And when sinners proudly regard themselves as righteous, and they don't see their desperate need for a Savior, that's, it's what they do. They reject the gospel offer of Jesus Christ. Your duty is simply to remain faithful to your Savior and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and to do it with boldness. And God will save some. He loves, God loves to save sinners. And he brings salvation to those who are outcasts, those who are nobodies. At least they view themselves that way before God in all his holiness. What does 1 Corinthians 26 say? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So just remember, Seacoast, this will be flattering. You were just a bunch of low, weak, foolish sinners. You were just a bunch of pariahs. And God called you, didn't he? He chose to save you. By grace, sheer grace. And now you are to likewise go and minister that gospel to a lost and dying world. So go to Portsmouth, go to Dover, to Durham, to Lee, to Rochester, and look for those who are poor in spirit. Find the spiritual outcasts who are desperate for a Savior and keep preaching the gospel. And you will discover that God is calling some. And those who are willing to admit that they're crippled and blind and lame because of sin, they'll come to Christ. And this church will get built as Jesus builds his cosmic church. God will add numbers here at Seacoast Community for the sake of his glory. So may God richly bless this little gospel outpost here in New Hampshire as we're praying for revival in New England. Can I close in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Seacoast Community Church, and I thank you for the brothers and sisters that are here that have experienced your, your sweet and transforming work of salvation. And I pray that you would add to their number. So those who are here outside of Christ, I pray that you'd cause them to be born again. And those who are in the surrounding community, I pray that you would call some to come to Christ and that you would use this church to represent your kingdom in a powerful way. Thank you for our time together this morning. We give all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to that point in our worship experience that we're going to participate in something called communion. And after... Hearing that sermon, I decided to change some of the things I was going to say because it is so powerful what was just shared by Eric. And when you think about what Christ did for us, why he died for us, and how he died for us, it's incredible to think about how they perpetuated something called communion from the time that Christ walked on this earth until today. And we in the organized church today, we call it, it's a time-honored ordinance 
of communion. <clears throat> There's only two ordinances that we are deeply committed to in the current church, and one is communion, and the other is baptism. So clearly, summarized in the death and shed blood of Christ, who shed his blood and gave up his life on our behalf, causes us really to reevaluate what this and what this ordinance is all about. And it's a beautiful representation of Christ's sacrificial love, not only for his disciples back in the day, but also for us in the current time that we live. But we are to approach this ordinance or this table in a manner that pleases God. If you're here today and you're saying, well, I think I'll have a little snack here, or maybe it's an appetizer for lunch, or maybe you're bored because we do this communion stuff all the time, you need to reevaluate what you're thinking. And communion is really a time for reevaluation. We need to be characterized as approaching this table in a worthy manner. I'd like to share a scripture from Corinthians uh, chapter, uh, in 1 Corinthians, it's chapter 11, verse 27 to 29. And, and here's some language regarding the attitude that we come to this table. It says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner brings judgment unto himself. So think about that as we approach the table. So let me state that the table that we observe here is both closed and open. And what does that mean? It's open to anyone here, regardless of their church membership, who have done at least three things. They've come to grips with the reality of Christ in their life. They have come to grips with who Jesus was and why he came to this earth. Secondly, all that have professed Christ as their personal Lord and personal Savior and have been baptized are welcome to participate in this meal. And all who hold no grudge against a fellow believer are also encouraged to participate. But if you hold a grudge against a fellow believer, or if you have not professed Christ as Lord and Savior, then I would politely ask you to refrain from participating in the meal, but this is a great time, as Eric implied, for you to evaluate your own life and take awareness of what's happening around you. So I would just ask you to refrain and just think about what's going on. So let me pause and examine how we view what we are about to do. And so let's pause for a moment of silence 
and meditate in your heart, in your mind, as to whether things are right between you and God. So I ask you to pause right now and think about that with a moment of silence. Amen. After listening to Eric, I thought I would also go back to the book of Luke and talk about communion. Um, the moment has come for us to take of the cup and, and eat of the bread. Let me read from Luke, who was an eyewitness to what I'm going to read. He says, And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What did that mean? What was he going to suffer? I think Eric pointed that out, but think about it. He suffered rejection. He suffered an, an illegal arrest. He suffered through beatings, through trials, through nails driven through his hand. And so when he said, I am celebrating this meal with you before I suffer, I think you have a greater depth of understanding of that. Before he continues on and says, For I say to you, I will never eat again this meal until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he continued on. It says a cup, not multiple cups. We're going to use multiple cups. And I would encourage you, if you haven't got one to, and you believe in Christ, uh, to pick one up. But I've been at a church before where they had a common cup, one cup at the bottom, and people came forward and they drank of the common cup. Uh, that's another approach to the ordinance of communion. But I share that with you because I need to go quickly to 1 Corinthians and, and press on. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 23 and following is the actual order of the ordinance of communion of the Lord's table as described by Paul. So he says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took the bread. And when he had broken, excuse me, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a celebration of remembrance. In the same way, eventually, he also took the cup. But let's at this point in time take the uh, cup that has been given to you and peel back <laughs> the place where the bread is. And uh, I ask you at this point in time to join me in in the act of communion. So, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, take the cup, I mean the bread. Following that, in the same way, he took the cup after supper and said this, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I invite you to take the cup at this time. As the praise team returns to the platform, let me, let's ask you to all go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we acknowledge you as our personal Lord and Savior. We acknowledge you as the Savior of sinners. And Lord, we have all sinned and come short of what your expectations are for our life. But Lord, you've paved the way for us to have that wonderful gift of eternal life. You've given us the ability to fall on our knees in an act of repentance and ask for forgiveness when we do sin, when we do depart from your pattern for our life. And so, Lord, we just thank you and praise you for who you are. There is no way that we can come close to fully understanding that sacrificial love, that why you would walk on this earth and put up with what you did except for one reason, you love us. And so, Lord, thank you for that agape love, that sacrificial love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You guys can uh, stand up. We'll praise God with one last song.
Jesus. We'll end this morning with Romans 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful Lord's Day.